When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Coming up shortly, you can hear my chat with Phil Yates looking ahead to the British Open. We've uh, gone through the first round draw, picking some of the highlights, and there are plenty of highlights. It's very interesting, of course, an open draw, so that's coming up shortly. No drama this week. I'm going to get straight in to the emails, although just before that, I want to say thank you for the emails that you've sent, many of them supporting the podcast. If you do listen on Apple Podcasts and you enjoy what you hear, you can leave us a review on there, and that gives other people the opportunity to find the podcast because still people are, are writing in saying oh I only just discovered this podcast and you know we've been going for six years so that tells you that obviously in the in the overcrowded podcast world it's not always easy to stand out so if you can uh, if you can do that that would be appreciated uh, don't have to but uh, anyway <laughs> we move on uh, I'm going to get straight into the emails we start with Adam Wareham he asks a very direct question why isn't the Masters a ranking event I know that in the past the format has been different and wildcards have been announced to allow crowd favourites to appear who may not deserve to be there on current form. But I believe that for many years now the format has been to invite the top 16 players to appear. When Ronnie declined a couple of years ago, his place went to Ali Carter, who was then ranked 17th. That seems sensible. None of this sounds too dissimilar to the format for the Players' Championship, where the top 16 on the one-year list qualify, or the Tour Championship, where the top eight qualify. Surely elevating the Masters to a ranking event would only increase its prestige, so why does it remain a non-ranking event? Am I missing something? And on a different topic, why has Stephen Hendry not entered the Championship League? If he wants to fulfil his dream of making a final crucible appearance later this season, surely he needs competitive games. Well, on that latter point, I mean, I think Stephen was quite clear. He said he wanted to play in front of audiences that don't have audiences at the Championship League. I tend to agree, though. If he wants to be competitive, he has to play as much as possible, and certainly... I hope he'll play more snooker this season than he than he did last year. He entered the Gibraltar Open and the World Championship last year, or last season. Um, he's in the British Open. He's playing Chris Wakelin, so that's uh, that's a good chance to see him in uh, well just a few days' time. But on the point about the Masters, well, this has been asked a few times. Um, strictly speaking, it's not actually like the Players Championship and the Tour Championship for this reason. On a one-year list, everyone has the chance the same chance to get into those events because everyone is starting essentially on the one-year list from zero. The Masters uses a two-year list and of course there are some players who are coming onto the circuit, you know, for the first year of a two-year card who don't have the previous year's points. So they're at a disadvantage. 
that's one reason. I personally don't see how the prestige of the Masters could be increased by making the ranking event. I don't think most people who watch Snook on TV really, frankly, care about that sort of stuff. They're going to see the top 16 in the world. What does it matter if they're ranking points? Uh, the Masters has become, to my mind, the second biggest tournament on the circuit in terms of its sort of importance, its prestige, um, every match of final and all of that. However, there are arguments you talk to some players to say, why not just make everything a ranking event? Because pretty much everything is now. You know, even the shootout, you know, controversially, is a ranking tournament. So there's an argument to make it one. The problem with that, of course, is what you're effectively doing is rewarding players who already have an advantage in terms of where they are in the rankings. If you're in the top 16 and you get extra ranking points in a tournament no one else is playing in outside the top 16, that seems a bit unfair. So there are arguments for and against. Personally, I would just leave it as it is. Matt Owen writes, Something that I've been meaning to email you about for a while but never seem to have gotten round to. When the listener in last week's podcast criticising Ronnie O'Sullivan's off-table behaviour spurred me into finally putting pen to paper or keystroke to screen or whatever. <laughs> yeah, just to break in. Yeah, we had a, an email quite critical of Ronnie O'Sullivan's behaviour. I kind of defended him. Well, really, I just sort of put my own perspective and my dealings with him and what I've observed. Let's be clear, you know, he's done things that have been controversial. Um, but I made the point that he has these quite violent mood swings and that has affected his behaviour. I also made the point that as a player, you know, he's brought a lot of interest to snooker and personally I think that dwarfs all the controversy. Anyway, back to Matt's email. He says, it struck me that the potential life cycle of the professional snooker player far exceeds that of almost any other sport. In Ronnie's case, to be at the elite level of a sport and with all the external pressures that entails for a quarter of a century is surely unprecedented. Most sports stars' careers don't exceed a decade at the very top. In terms of practice, discipline and then tournament play, to live your life in this manner for such a protracted period must be extraordinarily demanding. That is not even to mention the pressures of the media, the glare of the public eye, and in Ronnie's case being essentially the talisman for the sport for 25 years. My uneducated take is that unless you are made of quite stern stuff, then this is bound to take its toll on you. We can't know what it is like to have that pressure and expectation heaped on you for so long. So it's hardly surprising that Ronnie dips out of tournaments occasionally or threatens to retire. The pressure on him, particularly if you are of a delicate mindset, must be relentless. Personally, I find Ronnie's behaviour more or less completely understandable. In fact, in Ronnie's case particularly, more so than, say, Mark Williams and John Higgins. He should be cut some slack. He has, for the most part, been a fine ambassador for the sport, despite quite public problems with mental health. There is no one that has dealt with what he has for so long, and far from being criticised, he should actually be applauded. Many thanks, and long may this podcast continue. It really is the highlight of my week. Perhaps that says more about me than I would like. <laughs> and Alpha Bonzi, regular correspondent, is also writing in about the same subject. He says, a quick defence of Ronnie O'Sullivan. Although your correspondent was right to point out some undignified things he said and done, you probably couldn't, couldn't count how many pairs of eyes he's brought to the game. Summed up by a quick 90-second montage from the 93 UK win to sixth world title, including two crucible maximums, the Thousand Centuries, those clearances in the 2012 World Final, and the Tour Champs Semi in 2019, and much more. I do sympathise with the other correspondent's disappointment with the format... I'm oh, sorry, we've moved on to a new subject here. He says, I do sympathise with your other correspondent's disappointment with the format of the new and approved British Open, and I reckon the problem could be solved by ditching the flawed current 1-8 in round one at the venue and go back to the 2010-12 system which saw the top 16 of that cut-off period seeded through to the venue joined by 16 qualifiers. So much simpler to follow, plus it gave the top 16 a reward for being the top 16 
without giving them the season-long ranking protection of the pre-Hearn era. That's a separate issue. I don't, I mean, listen, that's a perfectly valid argument. I don't think that's going to happen. I think World Snooker Tour have dug, dug their heels in with the, the flat draws. Um, yeah, but uh, I think the point, point you make about O'Sullivan is, is spot on. Um, we, you know, the amount of people he's brought to the game, I think dwarfs, you know, these sort of quite annoying at times things that he's done, but that's all they are really. It does, it's just noise. It, it doesn't really add up to that much. I don't think. Uh, Luke Bishop writes, I've just returned to the UK from two years in Melbourne and I was outraged to discover that there's no statue of the local hero and world champion, the Thunder from Down Under himself, Neil Robertson. Despite being a sport mad people, most Melburnians were even unaware when the World Championship was taking place, instead focusing their attentions on their version of the game involving dozens more players, a lot fewer balls, no table, singlets instead of waistcoats, and significantly more violence. I'm guessing he means Aussie rules football. <laughs> uh, Although I enjoy the novelty of watching Ronnie win a world title in the middle of the night, I'm glad to be back in the UK and hope to add to my paltry one visit to the Crucible, despite living within 40 miles of it for my whole life. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break in here. There's a diversion here about a player <laughs> who, who he saw didn't wash his hands after going to the toilet and the speculation what that would do to the cloth. If you don't mind, Luke, I'm going to gloss over that because it's a little ripe. You know, there might be people driving along with their, with their children in the back or whatever. So we're just going to slightly gloss over that. Uh, it's an interesting point, but uh, let's, let's leave it there. He says, uh, in conclusion, keep up the good work and go Geelong Cats. It might be Geelong Cats. I don't know anything about Aussie rules at all. The greatest team of them all, he says. And then he says, P.S. I've just read that Robbo supports the Collingwood. In, in which case, his snubbing by the Melbourne authorities is completely justified and I retract my previous outrage. I think we've stumbled into... Uh, <laughs> we've stumbled into an area maybe we should stumble out of there. Christian Thomasberger writes, I'd like to ask you today, what do you know about the origin of Ronnie's nickname? I know he has many of them, but what do you know about the origin of the rocket? I'm asking you because well-informed snooker commentator Rolf Kalb always emphasises that it has its origin not from his speedy playing style, but rather has been used originally more or less as a metaphor for his extraordinary climbing in the rankings. That wasn't seen before in snooker. What, did you what do you possibly know about that? I know that it's maybe hard to tell which meaning was first used, and if you think it's impossible by now, tell me. But as you are, as you are one elite journalist in snooker, maybe you can remember a very early newspaper article about that topic, or have you spoken to someone who remembers one? Well, I don't know absolutely, Christian, but the fact is, snooker nicknames initially um, came into being really to put on exhibition posters, and they were highly alliterative, i.e. Hurricane Higgins, Whirlwind White. So Rocket Ronnie makes sense from that perspective. Um, I don't know that it was Alan Hughes who came up with it. Alan Hughes was the MC for a long time, one of the, one of the great people in the game, actually, one of the funniest. I mean, there's very few people who've made me laugh more than Alan down the years. He, was, he did a great job. He was an old showbiz type. You know, he'd had a showbiz career, he'd actually had a football career, went into showbiz as a Master of Ceremonies, a compere, and, you know, was the MC, Master of Ceremonies at Snooker for many years. And he came up with a lot of these nicknames. Now, I think almost certainly Alan would have come up with this. And again, it, it just sort of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? You want that last um, sort of line of your intro to roll off the tongue, Rocket Ronnie. Um, it does actually represent his playing style a little bit. It, it suggests dynamism, it suggests something explosive, it suits him down to the ground. It's a perfect nickname, I think, for Ronnie O'Sullivan. So that would be my best guess that Alan Hughes came up with it. Now then, there may be people out there who will claim it themselves, maybe, oh no, I had the idea or whatever, I don't know for sure, 
Alan popularised it, and of course a lot of the MCs that have come since, people like Rob Walker, Phil Seymour, they've had to kind of inherit, they can't suddenly call Ronnie something different, so they've inherited some of these nicknames, and they've come up with a few of their own, I'm sure, as well, um, but they've been sort of passed down, it, and it's uh, obviously, you know, it's it's one that, that people just all immediately associate with him. So my best guess is that it was Alan Hughes, and essentially it's because it's alliteration, Rocket Ronnie, it makes perfect sense. Um, but it also does sum up his, his sort of playing style as well. Final email is from uh, James Heat. He says, now this is, we've been talking about the format for the British Open. Of course, it's best of fives early on. And James writes this, and he is, I think, pretty much spot on here. He says, I think the British Open has a short format because there seems to be a maximum of four tables in operation at once during this season. In the home nation's events, they manage to keep the matches at the usual length because they play most of the first round earlier in the season i.e. qualifiers. For the British Open, they're playing all the matches in seven days, so the matches have to be very short to be able to play all the matches with only four tables. Yeah, that's it, James. Um, there has still been no official explanation from Will Snooker at all, and I think that's a mistake. I was talking to a player last week who actually said what I'd said, which is, look, if they just told us, if they gave us a reason, we might find it easy to accept. The fact there's been nothing said continues to be, I think, quite damaging, actually, because it just allows people to come up with their own theories. But this four-table thing is interesting. They've, they've got a deal with a streaming company to... They have to provide streaming of every table. And what they found is that, economically, the best model is four tables. They did it at the Pro Series. That was, on, in the scheme of things, quite a low-key event, that Pro Series last season. It ran for several, several weeks. Um, but actually, they made money on it. They made money on it through the streaming of the four tables. So they've worked out this is the best economic model... And therefore, you're quite right. If they don't have pre-qualifying, and with a random draw, you can't really have pre-qualifying because, you know, you can you, you have, like, Selby Murphy playing in the qualifier somewhere. So without pre-qualifying, they've got to jam all the matches in. Now, they could possibly still play best of sevens, but best of fives it is. Um, there are rights and wrongs with this, I think. World Snooker Tour are ultimately a commercial body, and they are there, actually, in part, not just to run the tour, but to make money. And the two go together, obviously, you need the finances to run the tour. The fact is, this is a new event. It's 100,000 first prize. Um, and a lot of that money has come from, you know, careful stewardship of the game. Making money is not a sin at all. It's one of the things, actually, they're charged to do. The payoff, though, is you end up with a format that a lot of players don't like. But this was another discussion I was having with a player who was complaining about not just this, but a lot of things. And... So I was sort of listening to him, this was at Championship League last week, I was sort of thinking, you don't get it, do you? Because, actually, you can be the best snooker player in the world, you can be the best snooker player ever, but if there isn't the commercial structure around the game, you're not going to make a living. It doesn't mean anything. It's like being, a comparison would be, being the best billiards player in the world. Okay, I'm talking English billiards here. You could be a genius at billiards, but there isn't a professional circuit, anything like the snooker circuit with all the money, so just being brilliant at it, it doesn't mean anything unless you've got that commercial underpinning where where you can win all these big money prizes. We sort of had it in snooker a little bit going back nearly two decades when the game wasn't being well run. We only had six ranking tournaments. So even though you had genius players, they weren't being given the opportunities that, that their talent deserved. You know, think of how many more titles people like Ronnie O'Sullivan... Higgins, Williams, all those guys. I mean, they've won plenty, don't get me wrong. Think how many more they would have won had there been more tournaments. Stephen Hendry as well. 
Stephen Hendry, if there are as many ranking events now as there were... Sorry, if there are as many ranking events when he was playing as there are now, he would have won, I'm sure, over 50. I'm sure he would. But the game wasn't as well run then. So you, to, in order to maximise your ability on the table, you need that commercial structure around it. So things like this, although players... And I understand it from players' perspective, not liking the best of fives, and there's an argument to say they could have... If, they, if they're going to go with this four-table model, because it's commercially viable, they could have at least made them best of sevens. There's no need to say that. But look at, you've got to look at it and say, well, it, it's either we do it this way or maybe we don't have the tournament at all, and then we're a tournament down, and then we don't have the chance to earn the money. Um, it's a difficult one. I think always you have to look at, in sport, what's kind of protecting the sort of dignity of the sport against commercial imperatives. Some sports do that better than others. I think snooker does it pretty well. And let's be clear, when people complain about television, every tournament on the calendar has been brought into life because of television. That's the only reason this professional tour exists how it does, is for television. Even the World Championship, that's the only event that predates television, but the format has been moulded to suit television, to give BBC two weeks of, of coverage. Um, so... Okay, it's not ideal, maybe, for everyone, but it's kind of... Players tend to look at things entirely from their own perspectives, which is understandable, because, because they're snooker players. I suppose they don't need to see the other side of it. But the other side of it is quite simple. It doesn't matter how good you are at snooker, if there's not a commercial structure around the sport that enables you to make money, you're not going to. You're not going to earn a good living. And that's the trade-off, and that's the thing I think players need to look at Although I totally understand when they think when they come into a tournament and the matches are this short, they think, well, this is not a proper test of my ability. I do understand that, but it's a trade-off. And I don't see this necessarily continuing in this format, as, as James, he, the correspondent there, says, home nations, they're having pre-qualifying. That will be to essentially play some of the less glamorous matches in qualifying setups. The top players will be held over, so you'll still see them at the venue. They'll be best of seven. I'm going to make a prediction now, OK? And, and pe feel free to record this and play it back in a year's time if it backfires. My prediction is this, this format will not be repeated. There will not be another best of five tournament next year. I think actually will snooker tour, although they've said nothing about it. I think they will listen. And I think next year it will be slightly different, possibly with pre-qualifying of some kind. Listen, let's just hope the British Open's on again. That's the most important thing. Just before we move on to my chat with Phil Yates about uh, the first round draw of the British Open, one player who's not going to be there is Jamie O'Neill. Now, it was reported recently on the World Snooker Tour website that he has withdrawn from the tournament and been replaced with Dylan, Dylan Emery. That's all it said. Um, I thought it was a bit odd that no details were given, so I looked into it. It turns out Jamie O'Neill has been suspended. Uh, he's been suspended for his behaviour at one of the tournaments at Milton Keynes last year. Um, now, leaving aside the rights and wrongs of, of what happened and what he did and all the rest of it, um, I find it rather odd that that wasn't just reported as a fact. I mean, he's not playing in tournament because he can't. It's, to say he's withdrawn, I mean, technically and semantically, you could get away with it because he'd entered and now he's not in it. So, OK, he's withdrawn. But really, he's not playing because he can't play. It's like saying, oh, yeah, I'm not going to that party on Saturday night. No, I'm not going. It turns out no one's invited you to it. <laughs> Um, the disciplinary process is a little bit too murky for me. Um, it's murkier than in a lot of other sports. This is one area where snooker lags behind other sports that 
just openly report and document disciplinary cases. In snooker, a lot of them seem to be hidden away. And, and if it's not transparent, then it leads to people maybe feeling that they've got something to hide. Now, I'm not suggesting they do, but don't say he's withdrawn when he's suspended. That's the reason he can't play in the tournament. And really, it leads to a couple of questions. The first is, where is the press statement detailing why he's been suspended, how many tournaments has he been suspended for, and for what reason? And number two, who else has been disciplined that we don't know about? What other, maybe even withdrawals from tournaments, are put down to the fact that players can't play? Why not just be upfront about it? I find this, as I say, a bit sort of disingenuous to to make it look like he's withdrawn as if he's got a cold, but actually he's not allowed to play in the event because he's suspended. Um, I don't get why that can't just be expressed honestly um, because, you know, in the scheme of things, with the greatest respect to Jamie O'Neill, it's not a big deal that he's been suspended. He's, he's not a top eight player. He would probably wouldn't make hardly any column inches anywhere, but it should still be reported up front and honestly, surely. Surely that's how disciplinary matters should be conducted. Um, and, yeah, I, I just found it a bit odd that that it was because of put away, put 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 away as a withdrawal when, you know, he, he can't play in the tournament because he's been suspended from the tour. Anyway, we are proud members of the Sports Social Network. Do check out their other podcasts. You can email us anytime at snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. In the meantime, here is myself and Phil Yates looking at the great moments of the British Open. So, Phil, the British Open is almost upon us. Um, there's been a lot of chat, hasn't there, about uh, the format, the best-of-five format. Um, we've spoken to a lot of players. Let's be honest, quite a few are not happy, which I can understand from a player's perspective because, obviously, you know, they're very short matches. You're playing for your, your livelihood and all the rest of it. But not all of them are unhappy. We've spoken to some who are quite happy about it. I think some lower down the rankings actually feel maybe they've got a slightly better chance against the top players. Um, but it is short, the format. You're right to put in that disclaimer about the fact we're not players, so we come from a, a completely different perspective, of course. What I will say is this. In best of sevens, when they were introduced, there were moans there. And what happened was the, the lower-ranked players who struggled to get over the line in best of nines would find a barrier at three. So maybe they'll find a barrier at two in this. And you make a really good point. We were talking before about the the tournament in Glasgow, the ranking event where it was predominantly best of fives and look at the final there, it was Neil Robertson against Ronnie O'Sullivan I still think you'll get the, the usual suspects contesting the latter stages obviously I would be totally remiss to remove any possibility of a greater amount of shocks, I think there will be but one of the great aspects of the, the tour from an observational standpoint right now, is the variety it has, and of course there are plenty of other best of 11, best of 9 tournaments, best of 7 tournaments and the World Championship as well, which is on its own. So I've got no objection to best of 5s as such. And I think there's a salient point here. If this was an established tournament that already had a best of 9 or 11 format and it was reduced to best of 5s, I think the, the complaints might be a little more a little more valid. Here you've got a brand new tournament, well reintroduced after 17 years with a first prize of £100,000 I really can't see the problem Yeah, I, I think you're right to say obviously the British Open does have a history that's, that has a, a completely different format so maybe 
it, it, maybe it would have been a better idea to call it something else, although the British Open as a sort of brand, if you like, is very strong. I was talking to a player at the Championship League, and this sort of goes back to my what I always said about this, is that he actually said what I've been saying, which is if they just told us the reason, we might actually accept it, but no one said anything. World Snooker have not said a word about why it is this format, and so therefore conspiracy theories run right, right. you know what it's like in the players room when they start sort of chatting and I mean one player said to me oh yeah he said this was their plan all along they, they, they introduced the best of sevens to soften us up for the. I mean it's all nonsense but if you're not told the reason any reason then this sort of chat happens anyway the format is what it is tickets are selling well which is good news and I guess that's the, the test of it ultimately uh, you know how many people turn up and through the door um, I had a tweet the other day from a guy never been to snooker, watched snooker 35 years, never been to snooker. He's coming to Leicester to watch the British Open for the you know first live snooker ever. So it works for him. Yeah, well, you're going to get in the early days of the tournament. And by the way, I'm really looking forward to the event. I must say, in the early days of the tournament, you're going to get three sessions. You're going to get four players in each session on all four tables. So if you come on the Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, you're going to see. 48 different players if you're in the right position in the crowd to see all four tables at the same time I think it's going to be phenomenal value for spectators and I think it's worth making a point as well Dave that a lot of the players involved in the British Open weren't involved at the Crucible so they'll be back playing in front of a crowd for the first time in ages Snooker's not short of moaners we're two of them actually but um, <laughs> I do feel with this and I remember, I well remember when the Champion of Champions started, that before a ball was struck, people were trying to find fault with it. If it wasn't the format, it would be something else. It's the wrong time of year, it's the wrong venue, it's the wrong this, it's the wrong that. Listen, it's a snooker tournament, we're going to enjoy it. And let's get on with uh, just looking through the draw, which of course has been made. Um, first random draw in the British Open since 1992. There were three from 1990 to 92, as we discussed last week, uh, when we sort of went through all the... Events before we get into the draw again, you know, you hear people saying, "Oh well, of course it was all rigged, it was all fixed," because there are some glamour ties here. Uh, it wasn't fixed. We know um, Roddy and Ivan from Wilson Tour did it. I mean, you know, the idea that <laughs> those two are involved in some grand conspiracies is, is literally a joke. If you know those two, you, you know it's been done honestly. Here's the thing, though. Like, I, I think we sort of live in an age of conspiracy, don't we? People just look for conspiracies in everything. Things can just happen. Things can just happen randomly. You know, the world actually, here's the truth, the world runs on chaos, you know, and why shouldn't matches like this be pulled out? And, and also, these conspiracy theorists don't think it through. Mark Selby, Sean Murphy, that's the first match we're going to talk about. Mark Selby's from Leicester. To an extent, he's selling this event. You know, he's going to bring people in every day. If Will Snooker were going to fix it, they would give him a match he would definitely win because they want him in the tournament. The idea that you know they would put him against Sean Murphy and possibly go out on day one is ridiculous. But let's talk about that uh, that match. I mean, obviously this was the world final. That was a four-session, two-day you know epic. This is going to be short and sweet, one way or the other. Absolutely, I think it's a great televisual event immediately out of the gate. But I agree with you. I think that. I would have preferred them to be kept apart. You know, over the best of fives, I think we're defeating our own argument a little uh, by saying this, but over the best of fives, Murphy and Selby, I mean, toss a coin. If Murphy plays like he did at the World Championship, I think he's got a, a really good chance, obviously. I just wonder, though, because he plays a lot of golf and he enjoys his life, whether he's going to be as prepared for the tournament as, as Mark Selby is, and maybe that difference will be the key. 
Do the tactics change in a best of five? Because obviously the, the best of 35 world final, you could be 3-0 down, it's no great trauma. In this, if you're 3-0 down, you're at the tournament. So, I mean, they both they play different ways, don't they, obviously, but would either of them sort of change their approach, do you think? Certainly not to individual frames, no. I think where a player might be at a disadvantage, if they're a notoriously slow starter, and mm. we have those on the tour, we all know about that, I think, though, when it comes to a frame of snooker, whether it's a best of 35 or the first frame or second frame of a best of five, it's going to be exactly the same in terms of their approach to it. I just think that if one of them gets on top, I mean, you know how good they can play, and this applies to all of the matches, it could be over in half an hour. bit of deja vu for them, because, of course, they here in Leicester, you know, we go back 25 years as juniors... They would play each other at Willie Thorns every Sunday in, in this sort of length of matches. Um, obviously not, not as significant, although then it probably felt as significant as they were sort of dreaming of progressing in their careers. It's, but you just couldn't sort of pick a winner, could you? I mean, I don't think being in Leicester makes any difference, really. Um, you know, Mark Selby will have support, but it, it, it's very hard to say who's going to come through that. Murphy will have played, obviously, in the Championship League. Mark Selby hasn't played, but he'll have practised, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, Murphy will take that as just a match where he plays his usual game that's that's mm. him I just fear slightly for Mark Selby in the sense that he might think best of five best be cautious and maybe go into his shell a little because when he does that we all know he's not as effective as when he plays a little more fluently I'm not saying he's going to be like a whirlwind or a hurricane <coughs> but when he plays expansive snooker which we know he can at a very high level that's when he's really at his most dangerous obviously he's got the ability to to park the bus and to play defensively when he has to. But I think if he goes into a match with a premeditated idea, I need to be cautious here. That's when he could trip himself up. Yeah, and it'd be interesting being in Leicester to see... I mean, I presume he's going to have like his wife and, and maybe his daughter and from friends, family coming down to see him. Uh, that can put extra pressure on. It can motivate, but obviously you want to perform for them. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it, it, it's very, very hard to call. Um, Let's go on to. Let's be honest. The, the, the headline from the draw was Mark Allen, Rianne Evans. Um, now it's unusual for a man to play a woman in any sport. Really, it doesn't happen that often. But obviously, they have a very particular backstory. Um, it, it's private between them, but it's become public. There's, um, they had a relationship when they were younger. They had a, a child together. There has been a dispute over maintenance payments. That there's a court issue. Uh, the World Championship. Mark Allen asked for Rianne Evans to leave the practice room when she was working with the BBC so he could practice uh, and now they're going to play each other now it's a very uncomfortable situation for both not least because it's obviously live on TV well when I heard the draw I was absolutely dumbfounded and you've got competing sort of thoughts in your mind here first off I did feel a little sorry for Mark Allen actually it's for him, as you say, that's the best word, uncomfortable. Obviously, based on pure snooker ability, he should be a, a big favourite to win the match. But over the best of five, Rianne Evans is more than capable of beating anyone. What I will say is, and I know Mark would take this in the right way, from a purely television and interest point of view, media-wise, that is an unbelievable draw, isn't it? Mm. It's going to create so much interest... Not from the normal snooker channels either. I think it's going to be a crossover event, if you like. So, in that regard, it was a, a wonderful draw for the game. But clearly, for Rhiannon and Mark, not the, the best draw at all. Breather of them. No, I mean, you know, 
there is this backstory which cannot be ignored. This is not just another snooker match, but ultimately all they're going to be doing is playing snooker. I would ask people to remember one thing: there is their daughter involved in this as well, who's completely innocent, and uh, you know it should, her thoughts should be remembered as well. You know, people sort of quite gleeful about the draw, but there are other people involved. It's going to be an uncomfortable evening. That is one way or another. Whatever happens, really, um, I think both of them will be just be happy when it's over. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's one of those situations that well, I mean, we use the word in sport a lot, unprecedented. Mm -hmm. When sometimes it's an exaggeration. This really is unprecedented. I think the best thing that Mark can do is come over, play the match, and you know, see what happens on the table. That's where I'll be concentrating my thoughts as to what occurs there. But clearly, the outside world will be viewing it from a, a very different perspective. Be interested to see what will Snooker Tour do from a media perspective because I imagine there'll be a lot of requests for journalists to come. Um, now there may be, you know, with COVID sort of restrictions, perfectly good reason not to let them in, but that's going to be. It's a little bit like kind of the eighties, isn't it? You know, when when news reporters would come and report Alex Higgins and that sort of thing. We haven't really had that sort of thing for a while. Um, but anyway, that's that's not up to us. Um, that's up to the aforementioned people who did the draw. Uh, OK, well, that's going to create a lot of interest. But there's a lot of other really interesting matches, I think, in this draw. Um, Trump's got Mitchell Mann, who's... And he did a, a really interesting, very revealing interview with Phil Haig from the Metro, a typical Phil Haig interview, very, you know, lots of detail in there, talking about his various addictions he's had in his life, which have uh, been very debilitating, because he's the same age as Trump. They came up together, effectively, in the junior ranks. One has soared to the top of the game. The other has sort of struggled, really, and Mitchell Mann was saying, you know, he feels he's sorted himself out and time is still on his side. He can still actually make an impact. Not easy, though, when you draw the world number one in round one. Well, this is it, you see. I think not just for this draw, which is completely open, but in a lot of tournaments, time after time after time, the lower-ranked players, as they once were playing each other, are now playing the top guys. And if you get a succession of very, very tough draws... It can lead to a draining of confidence and your whole season being undermined. So I think it's a case of be careful what you wish for for those lower rank players. If they were playing each other in qualifiers to get through to play the, the, the top 16 in the last 32, as it used to be, that's a very different scenario from now. But one thing I will say about Mitchell Mann, we all know what he's capable of. And again, I'll repeat, over the best of five frames, he could beat anyone. I always feel though with Trump, and I certainly felt this last year with Milton Keynes, because obviously it was the same venue, same arena. That TV table, it's like his table. You know, it's like, come on, okay, who's next? Come on, play me next, and let, you know, I'll beat you as well. Uh, that, even though it is a short match, the TV, you know, environment suits Trump massively. Um, but of course, we don't know. We, you know, we don't know how he's going to perform. It's early season for everybody. You know, he's quite rightly been off on holiday. Why shouldn't he be? Um, sort of getting back into it. But um, let's be honest, and people sort of maybe don't like to talk about this, but I think we should. Money's a motivator for everybody, and this is a big tournament, 100 grand first prize, you know, early in the season, people haven't earned money for a while. He'll be up for it, Trump. Absolutely, and, and rightly so. He wants to win titles. The more he wins, the more he wants to win. Yeah. By the way, I'm just going to go off on a tangent here. We talk about people moaning. You hear people <laughs> moaning all the time, the lower-ranked players, about, oh, Judd Trump and Ronnie O'Sullivan, they're on the main match table all the time. And... That is the correct thing to do because they are the needle movers. They are the, the ratings getters. No doubt about it. If you put Trump on an outside table, O'Sullivan, and you've got a, a match that is of lesser interest to the, the wider 
snooker public, it's bad for everyone in the game because you want to maximise your figures and you want to maximise uh, the, the interest in the tournament in general. So that's just a little tangent there. Oh, you're right. No, listen, you're right. And, and, and some, a player, I remember a few years ago, a player said to me, everyone should have an equal chance to play on the main table. Well, the truth is, everyone has an equal chance to win the World Championship. Ronnie O'Sullivan's won it six times, Trump's won it, and everything else he's won. That's why they're on there, because they're at the top of the game. Yeah, I remember on one occasion at Plymouth Pavilions, they decided, because there was a lot of unrest <coughs> with the players, this is probably nearly 30 years ago now, a lot of unrest with the players that they weren't going to put Jimmy White on. Um, he was playing against Dominic Dale on an outside table. Everyone flocked to that outside table, and there was no one around the main match table. It was a good match, actually. But there was no one around the main match table. It happened at the Welsh Open years later in Cardiff when, unbelievably, they put Stephen Hendry and Jimmy White on an outside table in favour of a, a Welsh player out in the main match arena. It doesn't work. End of story. It doesn't work. The point is, it is unfair. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. But life's unfair. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 that, that is an example of some crazy decisions. It reminds me of something the late Terry Wogan said about BBC management. He said, uh, he said their motto is, if it ain't broke, break it. <laughs> anyway, we'll move on, because I think for snooker fans, OK, there's some headline acts there, but for snooker fans, there's some really interesting matches. And, you know, if you come along, you get a chance to see, you know, all these potentially in the same day. John Higgins, much slimmer John Higgins than we saw last season. He's lost two and a half stone. He's going uh, to spinning classes in, in Glasgow three times a week. He says he goes to basically an industrial estate. They play loud music. You, you cycle for 45 minutes. You sweat, you know, loads, but you lose weight. Two and a half stone. He looks good, doesn't he? And he's playing Alexander Ersenbacher. That's a really interesting match. Well, Ersenbacher, um, when he's three matches out of three mm. to qualify from the first phase of the Championship League, didn't lose a, a single frame. I thought he was absolutely sensational. Um, John Higgins, although he didn't get through in the Championship League, played very nicely, just that he ran into a buzzsaw by the name of Nopon Sankam, who played superbly. Yeah, it seems as though the, the Higgins practice regime has done him a lot of favours, and I was talking to Stephen Maguire, actually, about this, and Stephen was telling me that John intends to continue as the season progresses, and so it's not just a, a close season, sort of short, sharp fitness regime, he's going to carry on with it. Yeah, well, I spoke to him, and, and you could see he was just kind of, like, he's happier just for having done it, you know, it's an achievement, you know, because you get older, you get lazier, and you kind of think, okay, I'm just going to kind of, this, I'll just put on weight, you know, the rest of my life sort of thing, but actually he's, he's sort of made a conscious decision. I don't think he's ever really massively been into fitness, so it's quite a big thing to do. He looks healthier, he looks happier, and, you know, he, we know what a great player he is, that's not in doubt. So, of course, he's the last winner of the tournament as well. He's, he's sort of technically the defending champion. Well, he was chuckling last week, because I mentioned that. I said, here he is, the defending British Home champion, and he thought it was rather absurd. Of course, there was a, a debate, actually, about whether, had it been a normal structured draw, whether he would have been the number one seed. Matt Selt said the same thing, actually. If the Indian Open comes back on the calendar, will he be the number one seed? It's, a, it's an interesting little niche argument. Yeah. Didn't really come into to play here, but I think John's got a great chance. He's got a great chance in any tournament he plays in. Let's put it this way. If he plays like he did at the Players' Championship, give him the trophy now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, of course, he shares the record for most British Open wins with Stephen Hendry, who's also in the draw. Now, Hendry won this title, what, 33 years ago for the first time. He's got Chris Wakelin, who did, did quite an interest in... Uh, Interview, good interview on the World Snooker Tour website, where he said very innocently, he wasn't, you know, wasn't sort of trying to wind anyone up. He said, "Oh yeah, he said, 
I'm too young to remember Hendry in his prime, but my mother used to love him, you know, which is kind of <laughs> tells you how long Hendry's been going. Uh, I'm happy he's in this, though, Stephen, because last year, you know, he, had to, he was given this tour card. He, we didn't see him for months. He decided not to play. I don't think he liked the behind-closed-doors thing. But if he's going to do anything, he's got to be playing as much as the other guys. So it's good to see him in this. I really hope I get to commentate on that match. It'll be a case of uh, nostalgia for me. I'm a massive Stephen Hendry fan, if you didn't already know. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert, yeah, yeah. I just would love to see him play a couple of really good matches like the old days. We saw Jimmy White, actually, in the Championship League play one really good mm. contest against Sean Maddox. He flew around the table, he made three lovely breaks, and it was it was so gratifying to see, and I think it would be exactly the same emotion if Hendry did the same at the British Open. But I think it's a really interesting match, actually, a good draw in terms of seeing where his game is, because Chris Wakelin, he's not at the very top of the game, but he can play the game, he's a very solid professional, and we know that the strength and depth in the game has improved. Stephen Hendry playing, I'm not absolutely sure where Chris is ranked actually, but say he's like 60, if Stephen had played the world number 60 30 years ago he'd be a certainty, now by no means anyone would be a certainty against them. Well I haven't seen the odds for the tournament yet but I would hazard a guess that the bookmakers would make Wakeland favourites and I would not disagree with that, he's a very capable sort and if he's been practising a lot, which he normally does because he's also dedicated, I definitely would make him favourites, having said that though, if Hendry can rekindle the old magic well that's an entirely different thing amazing uh, sorry Phil I've just looked at he's world number 60 I've just looked at the rankings I didn't know that what about that it must have been some weird sort of I don't know something weird there <laughs> subliminal statage yeah exactly <laughs> exactly well yeah that's, I think, as I say I think it's an interesting one just to test if Hendry had come in against Trump you know you can't re maybe couldn't really see where his game was but that's it's a winnable match but it's a tough match so yeah looking forward to seeing him and then some, some other real sort of standouts. I mean, these, these are matches that, you know, we hope to see on TV because the sort of matches snooker fans, I think, will really enjoy. Barry Hawkins, Luca Brussell. Luca Brussell is a player who I constantly feel should be higher in the rankings than he is. We know he had huge trouble a couple of years ago and all the rest of it. Uh, Barry Hawkins, you know, the solid, all the rest of it, all these sort of, sort of compliments that aren't quite compliments for him. Really good player, bottom line. Absolutely. I, I think that's intriguing. And I think Luca Brussell is just the kind of player, I'm not going to say he's going to do this because you can't make any predictions for this tournament, but he's the kind of player, if he got on a roll, mm. I think he could go all the way. Um, when I see him play well, I think, how is he not right ensconced in the world's top ten? But of course, you've just heard about Barry Hawkins being consistent, which he is. That's Brussell's problem, he's inconsistent. Mm. But I will say this, he's got one thing going for him, he's high, he's very high. This is why, though, it's difficult to, to predict the win of the tournament because normally you'd look at the draw at the start and say, OK, well, I think you know Mark Williams has got a good draw or Mark Selby, whatever. We don't know who's going to draw who in the next round because it's random, so that makes it more of a leveller, maybe. Another match, uh, again, which is kind of, you know, sort of proper snooker fans match, I think, Stuart Bingham, Robert Milkins, that's sort of match that, you know, I don't think Bingham would be punching the air at that draw. That's, a, you know, Rob Milkins again, certainly in any format, but certainly the best of five could give him real trouble. Well, he could give him real trouble and he could send Bingham back in 30 minutes and that's something that Bingham is well aware of. Yeah. He's the kind of player, much like Brussel, who you don't want to draw in this format because they can make quick starts and all of a sudden, bish bash bosh, handshake. What I will say is that I was very impressed with Stuart Bingham in the first stage of the Championship League. He got through his group he made some big breaks, but in each match, he made a really superb clearance at just the right time. Now, that tells me his game's in pretty good shape. 
and of, of course he's desperate to go back up the rankings and re-establish himself as one of the, the game's totally leading players so I think he'll be highly motivated and I think that's a, a match that I'll certainly be watching with great interest you mentioned Jimmy White earlier. Of course, he's won the British Open twice uh, back in the day, 87 and 92. He plays somebody who wasn't alive, wasn't even close to being alive then, Aaron Hill. Um, of course, last se- I, I, I'm sure Aaron Hill is proud of beating Ronnie O'Sullivan last season at the European Masters, but he doesn't want forever to be remembered for that, obviously. He wants to move on. You know, we talk about James Cahill um, beating Ronnie at the Crucible. What have we really mentioned about him since? I mean, he's dropped off the tour, you know, so he's sort of battling. He's in this event, but he's battling to get his, his tour card back. So Aaron Hill almost has got to sort of put that to one side, which I'm sure he's, he's trying to do. But always when you get a new player against, let's be honest, the oldest player on the circuit, that's an interesting clash. Jimmy will have so much support, but he's got his work cut out. And maybe, you know, Aaron Hill, because he hasn't grown up watching, literally watching Jimmy's great moments, won't sort of have the same reverence maybe that some of the older players might have for him. I'm sure that's absolutely correct. The win over O'Sullivan was terrific. He's got a great amateur career behind him, Aaron Hill, so let's hope he kicks on this season. I think with Jimmy though, you know, he's been there forever. 40 odd seasons on the tour, turned professional in 1980 and yet, he's still very nervous when he plays. Mm. He'll go into that tournament knowing he could make an impact and I think his biggest opponent will be himself. That's absolutely true. I think, that's right, Jimmy, it means more to him than ever now, I think, playing on TV certainly. Obviously, for years, 25 years, you kind of took it for granted, you know, I'm going to be out in the main arena and loved it. Now, it's becoming sort of rarer, um, so it's a big deal. And obviously, he's got pride in performance. He's not turning up for the fun of it. He thinks he can still do something. He's, he backs himself. Um, but that puts extra pressure on. So it's kind of, it's sort of cash 22 in a way. If he could relax more and just like, say to himself, you know, he's got this two-year card. If he said to himself, right, I'm just going to enjoy playing for these two years maybe that'll be it then then maybe the results will come if he puts too much sort of intensity into it then he's going to be more edgy isn't he absolutely yeah uh, we saw this in the championship league actually the the match he played very nicely in really nicely was the the last match when he couldn't top the group it mm. seemed as though he played with a lot more freedom and it wasn't just the fact he was knocking in balls he he looked better he looked less edgy and the cue action even seemed smoother so I think it's a case of him of conquering his own sort of self-expectation and going out there and playing with a bit of liberty. If he does that, he's definitely capable of winning matches. And would it be great to see him go deep into the tournament? Because it's the same thing as what we were talking about before with O'Sullivan and Trump being on the main match table. Some people have criticised the fact that White has got a wild card again to play on the tour for two years. Give him the wild card. He's massively popular. What harm does it do? What he's done for the game is incredible, but I think even more importantly, commercially, it's a good move because people still love him. Yeah, and, and the thing is, okay, this is a snooker podcast, so the listeners will be in the main hardcore snooker fans, so they're seeing it almost from the sort of inside out, but you need to see it from the outside in. Snooker needs as much attention as it can get, okay? So things like having Ryan Evans on the tour gives it attention. Having Jimmy and Stephen on the tour gives it attention. That's what we need. We need people to be aware of it. It, you know, who are not hardcore snooker fans, um, and that will bring hopefully more attention, more broadcasting, more sponsorship, all the rest of it. So, it might not be strictly fair, but life's not fair. You know, this is a commercial entity, and th- these things definitely help. Absolutely. You know, this is a a little bit of an example. 
back in the day when Jack Nicholas played in the Open for the last time, uh, Matthew Syed, who we both know very mm. well and I respect him greatly, Matthew, he's a phenomenal writer. And 99 times out of 100, I agree with him, but I didn't on this occasion. He said basically that Nicholas, in an article in the Times, this was, Nicholas shouldn't be there as a ceremonial golfer. <coughs> he should give his place to someone who's competitive. And I could not disagree more. I was actually there at St Andrews when he walked across the, the Swilkin Burn onto the bridge there, playing with Tom Watson and Luke Donald. He birdied the last. I was commentating on the interactive service on BBC. And I'm telling you now, quite openly, as he was walking up that 18th fairway, myself and my co-commentator, Dennis Hutchinson, who was a fine player from South Africa, who knew Jack well, we let it breathe for about five, six, seven minutes. A, because that was the correct thing to do, but also we were both crying. It was so emotional. Now, to have Nicholas there just was one of the great moments of that tournament. And to have Jimmy involved is a great moment every time he plays. Got to be said, Matthew, he's a great writer, he's a bit of a contrarian, which I don't mind, but yeah, that doesn't surprise me, that story. What about this for a draw, Phil? Graham Dot Martin Gould, that's a first round match. <laughs> I, I know, well, I mean, you know, Dottie likes a moan, so, <laughs> so there's some fuel there, you know, I get all the bad draws. Gould, Gouldy can moan as well, by the way. <laughs> yeah, 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 well maybe they should have a, a moan off, yeah. a, a best of five moan off. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we, we should do that, Dave, I think we'd be, <laughs> we could we'd probably do a best of 19, though. Yeah, I, I, I feel... A little sorry for both of them because a really good player is going to depart immediately. And let's face it, best of five, those two, you know, it's anyone's. Yeah. Dean Young was the only uh, player to come through Q School who hadn't been on the tour before. He's done a lot of practice with Scott Donaldson. And, you know, first tournament, apart from the Championship League, a league event, first knockout tournament, he draws Scott Donaldson, uh, which is awkward, isn't it? Because I, any other draw, they'd be practicing together beforehand. I guess they can't now. Um, and also there is that sort of he's got to set aside any sentiment they both have actually Scott would love Dean to do well Dean obviously supports Scott that's all got to be forgotten yeah awkward but obviously not on the scale of the match we talked about <laughs> right at the start of the right at the start of the podcast it was uh, nothing in comparison with that yeah it's it's a, a really bad draw for both of them you know you've got to draw the positives as the cliche goes at least one of them will go into the last 64 and Scott Donaldson has got really good memories of the Morningside Arena because it's where he won the, the Championship League, his big pro title, so maybe he will galvanise those memories and come good again. Yeah, good memories apart from nearly dying. But <laughs> he's got, he was taken ill, wasn't he? Some allergic reaction. Thankfully, all was well. <laughs> well, I actually saw him because they stopped the that group final. They stopped that for about, I think, three or four occasions because he was so ill. And I felt so sorry for him. The colour drained out of his face. At one point, he actually had some problems breathing. He felt terribly nauseous and weak. Luckily, though, he was able to recover enough to play the match. And he ended up, funnily enough, beating Graham Dodd 3-0. Yeah, and Graham, um, he could have claimed that match, actually, because he's supposed to take 15 minutes, you know, and then you've got to get on playing. And Graham said, no way am I going to claim any frames, you know, his health is more important. Of course, we mentioned Rianne Evans, that there is another woman in the, in the field, Ongi from Hong Kong, who we hope will come over. She couldn't come over for the Championship League, but we hope to see her for that. She's got David Grace, um, a listener to this podcast, actually, and, and you know, one of the great enthusiasts. Um, a, t a tough one. She's tough, though. She's a different sort of player, I think, to Rianne. She, she's a very good safety player, and, you know, in, in a short match, maybe that, I don't know, maybe that'll make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Could frustrate opponents, that. She's definitely not the break builder that Rianne is. Most certainly not. But 
if she keeps everything tight and wins a frame or two, the other guy will be under an awful lot of pressure. So, yeah, the main thing is, let's hope she can come over and play because she's been given this to a card because she's in the top two of the, the women's world rankings and we need her to come over to start playing events because if she can't come over until the middle of the season or, God forbid, late in the season, then basically the tour card doesn't mean a lot. That's right, yeah. There's, there's some real good matches actually here. We've got to show you long against Tom Ford. Obviously, Tom is a Leicester man. That's a tough draw for him. Fergal, we must mention Fergal O'Brien. He's got Gary Wilson, Michael Holt, Mark Davis. You know, a lot of experience there. So, obviously, there's some headline matches, but you drill down into the draw. Actually, some really good games, and that's going to continue as the tournament goes on. I'm going to make a wild... Not a wild prediction, but I'm going to name an outsider for the title, Phil. See what you think about this. I think you'll be in agreement because we've seen him play the Championship League some great stuff. Nopin Senkarm, right? Now he, we know he's been practicing hard, and we were speaking to, uh, I can't remember who it was now. Someone was practicing with him, uh, Jamie Clark, yeah, who's practicing with him, and Jamie said, and Jamie's a really good player, and he beat him 16-1 or something. Incredibly. I swear, folks. <laughs> honestly, this is not set up in any way. I was thinking as Dave mm. started that sentence, I'm going to say Nopon Sankom is my outsider. He played brilliantly against John Higgins to to win the group decider. He had a, a century in the first frame, a century in the third, and a really superb colours clearance in the second frame involving mm. a, a real pressure blue to a distant ball pocket. He said actually in his interview that's been disputed by all of the players yeah. that he's been practising for 15 hours a day. And I can understand why... That was disputed because it does seem a little far-fetched. Maybe there was a, a language barrier involved there. But he's certainly been practising a lot. And yes, I would give him a great chance, Sankon. He plays Sean Maddox in the the first round. I think he's a, a big favourite for that. As for my prediction, not an outsider, how about Yan Bingtao? Mm. The reason I'm saying this, he played brilliantly in the first stage of the Championship League. And he's had a month of intense practice. Now, a lot of these guys will have spent a lot of time during the summer on the golf course, so he's got a, a head start. Mm. Yeah, I, I think he's, uh, he's obviously a Masters champion, but he's, of course he'd already won a ranking event, he'd been in finals, and I like the way he plays. He gets under players' skin, he has his own way of playing, he's a bit enigmatic with some of his shot choices, he's good at controlling matches, even with his sort of young years against experienced players. We saw that at the Masters with the, the three deciders he won. But uh, it's going to be interesting, you know, it's still early season, the matches are short, uh, it's a random draw, so you're not quite sure who's going to play who as it goes along. I'm really looking forward to it, actually. Uh, the British Open, it's got a, a great history, and it's coming back. We'll be here, Phil. We're looking forward to like, the ITV4 coverage. Well, it's... Look, I'm not saying this because we're involved. It's tremendous coverage. They do such a great job. Neil Cox, the, the producer, he puts everything into it. Our directors, the whole team. And also, I will give a, a shout-out to one particular member of the team, Martin Reardon, who produces segments during the event. He's a, a, a VT man par excellence. We're going to do a history piece, I know, for sure, that you might want to see when the event starts. Martin Reardon, what a, what a man. He does a great job, and his music choices for those pieces yeah. are absolutely spot on. So, every credit. Now, Martin, he's done, uh, Martin's done a trailer uh, with some of the old stuff in. Dickie Davis is in it and all that stuff. So that's uh, for people of a certain age will appreciate that. Yeah, so 16th of August it all starts. Hopefully everyone will enjoy it. And uh, if you're coming along, I hope you enjoy... There's still tickets available. If you're coming along, I hope you enjoy seeing you know a lot of different matches. 
and uh, someone's going to pick up 100 grand so it's going to be a good week for somebody for now though that is it thanks for listening and goodbye sports social podcast network hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus